Welcome to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals. I'm Dr. Peter Spiegel. Today we are going to bring you what I hope will be a clearer and more comprehensive picture of what is happening in Florida following Irma and about preparing for and responding to natural disasters. So, I am very pleased to welcome Laura Bevan. She serves as Southern Regional Director for the Humane Society of the United States. Welcome, Laura. Thank you. Describe the situation on the ground in Florida. Which areas were affected most in terms of lost, displaced, injured, and killed animals? Irma was a very unique storm in that it impacted huge huge sections of the state. We had the storm come in, go over the Keys and do a massive amount of destruction in the Florida Keys, and then in southwest Florida, which is Naples, Fort Myers, that area. But then as it swung around, it really impacted with a lot of rain the inland areas and on up to Jacksonville, which had some massive flooding. And we had several animal shelters across the state uh, flood. We have ongoing flooding right now um, in which animals are, you know, standing on cars and, and situations like that. So you had the damage that people saw on the beach areas um, or on where New York Irma came on land, but then she really impacted the whole state. Okay, so you mentioned animal shelters. Let's speak a little further about them. Are shelters supposed to have contingency plans or emergency plans? Or I imagine they can really be a focal area of a lot of trouble unless you have a good plan and can implement it. Most shelters do have plans, and some of the plans involved, such as the Humane Society of the United States, we moved some animals out of the state pre-storm to free up their adoptables. They took their adoptable animals, and we flew or transported them by big rig out of the state, as did other groups, and that was part of their plan, and they battened down the hatches. In most cases, the flooding came a day or two after Hurricane Irma went through, so it caught some of the shelters, some of the small shelters that were in these areas, and some of them were in rural counties, off guard because they really didn't anticipate that level of flooding to show up days later. So consequently, did many animals drown or otherwise perish? My understanding is that in the situations where the shelters flooded, the staff was able to save all the animals, and then those animals were moved to uh, larger counties, where in some cases, then they got transported out of the state with those, you know, with the animals, the adoptable animals from those. So luckily, no animals died in that situation. The Keys were still evaluating. Um, The animal shelters in the Keys did evacuate their animals. They battened down the hatches. Um, and so no animals were lost there. But, you know, there were a number of people that sheltered in the Keys, uh, despite the mandatory evacuation. There are people that left their animals behind, and we're still trying to get a handle on exactly what that situation is. How are the activities of the humane organizations and the governmental agencies coordinated? Florida has a very advanced plan that's been in place uh, since Hurricane Andrew 25 years ago. We've been working on our plan. We have a state agency, um, our Florida Department of Agriculture, that is our lead agency, and they bring all the players for any type of animal or agriculture issue together. And you get the problems and you sort them and you send them out to different groups. So there is an advanced plan to try to get 
helped everybody to try to evaluate the issues. The University of Florida is very involved. So we do have a, uh, a massive plan in Florida that's been implemented and then you just have to deal with the disaster and, and hope for the best and try to help everybody you can. Anybody who has anything to do with, uh, you know, any type of animal issue is all packed in a room and they're dealing with the problems that are coming up. Now, that's not to say that every situation is handled, you know, before anything bad happens. It's a disaster, but it means that there's a coordinated effort to look at what's happening and to, as problems come up, deal with them, like the flooding that came after Hurricane Irma went through. You know, there's uh, we are doing an aerial survey of a lot of the rural counties to try to determine if there's, like we did in Texas, you know, cattle that are stranded without food and clean water out in some of these rural areas, that while the focus has been on, you know, the populated areas, these animals have not, you know, had been rescued or taken care of. So that's part of what we're doing right now. I'm glad you mentioned cattle. Can you speak a little further about other agricultural animals? For instance, horse stables and barns are not built to the same code that other structures might be. Right. The primary need that we've found over the last you know, few days since Irma uh, was that many of the stables, they lost their electric, they lost their water, um, their feed may have been you know, destroyed. So trying to get them that kind of help, that, try, that you know, clean water, clean food, help if horses have been injured. Luckily, we haven't heard extensively of that, yeah. but sort of that long-term care. Then you have the, you know, Florida's a big cattle state, um, and so, you know, are these cattle being stranded by the floodwaters? We're also a huge dairy state down in that area, and I know that the state was trying to work on getting feed into, you know, into those areas, um, because that was an issue right after the storm. We also have a lot of wildlife rehab facilities. Our uh, South Florida Wildlife Center um, took a major hit, and but you know got right back operating, and they're getting hundreds of animals in right now: baby squirrels, baby birds, you know, baby birds, all kinds of things. They even got two brown footed boobies that had gotten on a cargo ship and ended up in Fort Lauderdale. So the wildlife issues um, uh, are, are going to be massive also, uh, especially in the Keys. There's a lot of wildlife centers, wildlife rehab centers that took pretty bad hits. Some of them are destroyed. So we have to look and see how we can get those people back up and running also. On this show, we're really not big fans of your typical zoo. And one of the many reasons is because uh, frequently after disasters, you find that the animals were not able to be all protected or transported. Any specifics about zoos in Florida? From what I understand, the Wildlife Commission was doing a survey of all their, uh, uh, the people that have to, you know, that they license. Of course, the Miami Zoo came through Hurricane Andrew. It it did um, well. I have not heard of any problems there. And they did not get the, the force of the wind like they did in Hurricane Andrew. I have not heard of any major problems with um, with the zoos and the exotic animals in the state. I think the Wildlife Commission is still doing that survey, but it's always a concern. What have we learned from Katrina and Andrew, for that matter, that has made the situation better now? Well, after Hurricane Andrew, which I did work, 
back in 1992, Florida started pushing pet-friendly sheltering, and we were one of the first states, I think we were the state, to create the concept of pet-friendly shelters in conjunction with the other types of human shelters. So we had them open all over Florida. Um, I'm in Tallahassee. We had almost 300 animals here, and there were even larger amounts. I don't haven't got the final number all over the state. So I think that Florida learned way back in Andrew and and all the way through to now that pet friendly sheltering, providing people a place to go with their pets, is one of the important, most important things that um, that humane groups and you know animal lovers of any type can help with pre-storm and and even after the storm to help people have a place to go while they're rebuilding their lives. I think that's been the success story from many, many, many disasters before Katrina and after is let's take care of the people, let's keep them and their pets together, let's keep them all safe, and there's a lot less tragedy that happens for both those animals and their owners. So are the owners behaving more responsibly than they were two decades ago? You certainly have people that don't. They weren't behaving well with their pets before the storm, and there are a lot of stories of people um, leaving, you know, abandoning their pets at shelters or even just leaving them tied up. And there's some counties that are being very aggressive uh, with anybody who abandoned their animal before the, or after the storm. So I won't say that, you know, everybody suddenly is taking good care of their animals, um, and that will be handled separately. But for the people who did the right thing, who evacuated with their pets in the past, they had nowhere to go. And, and you know, over the years, and certainly in this storm, they had a safe place to go with their pet. Um, And we hope that that was a small part that we could play into getting them and their lives. We're speaking with Laura Bevan. She is Southern Regional Director for the Humane Society of the United States. Stick around. More with animals today after the break. For the past quarter century, International Society for Animal Rights has fought the battle against dog and cat overpopulation. Its programs include reducing income taxes by allowing a deduction for spay and neuter expenses, preventing animals adopted from shelters from reproducing, and requiring the mandatory identification of dogs and cats to prevent dumping the unwanted. For a list of all ISAR overpopulation programs, please see their website at www.isaronline.org. Welcome back to the show. We're speaking with Laura Bevan from the Humane Society of the United States. Laura, let's move to Harvey and Texas for a moment. How did Harvey differ from Irma and what effect did it have on the animals there? I think Harvey was just devastating to Texas. And it's hard to imagine the size of that storm and the amount of water that it dumped on on, on, on that state. Um, you know, the overall flooded area was, they said, bigger than New Jersey or something, and, you know, almost 52 inches of water came out of the sky. Well, you know, that's 
that's um, you know I'm five foot five. I'm uh, you know almost underwater at this point. So it's a massive amount of of rain that came down. So I think it caught a lot of people off guard. Houston has flooding problems, but they've never seen anything like this. And then it just went beyond that to all these other communities. They and then you had the communities that dealt with the category four storm coming in, like Rockport, that was destroyed. So. It was, um, I think, a huge event in Texas, um, a massive number of people, massive number of animals that were impacted. Uh, you know, the storm blew, you know, sat there on them and just essentially drowned people and their animals. Mm. The good thing is, in most cases, the rescuers took pets with them. Pet-friendly shelters were set up. We did hear some sad situations in which animals were not removed, and rescue teams went later. But um, Harvey was uh, a, a massive event in the history of disasters in the United States. So it will, you know, it will go down in the books. Now we are working. There's a whole lot of groups down there that work to rescue animals, and now are looking at how can you help these people put their lives back together? Can you provide food, water, veterinary care? You know, uh, a place hopefully, you know, to stay. Work with landlords that maybe didn't allow pets before the storm, but now will let people because they're victims. You know, there's a lot of work that happens even after the storm stops stops and then that emergency you know first let's go rescue animals out of the water after that passes it's a long road and we're trying to be there with the people of texas the whole way can you speak a little bit about the resources of the humane society of the united states how are they organized and deployed and uh, to what extent does the society uh, rely upon paid employees that are shipped where they need to be and volunteers on the ground. We do have um, our animal rescue team, which is paid staff. Generally, their job on a, a nice sunny day is to work, you know, the larger animal cruelty cases, the, you know, hoarding cases, the puppy mill cases, the dog fighting cases, and that's what they they do on a normal day. So that is paid staff. But, you know, it is not a huge number. Um, and we use a lot of volunteers. We use a lot of partnerships. We um, have emergent, what we call emergency placement partners, which are animal shelters around the country that will take uh, animals from, you know, an sh- animal shelter. In this case, let's say Jacksonville, um, Florida, that had massive flooding. So those animals may go to, you know, somewhere up north to be adopted. And these are the animals that were there before the storm. They're not people's pets that they're looking for. These are to help the shelters empty out so they can take more of the storm victims. And then then that shelter can hold those storm victims longer while they look for the owners. So, for instance, Naples is sending almost 200 animals to San Diego, California. And that's our partnerships with, you know, airlines, partnerships with private uh, flight companies. Then we have several large um, vehicles, rigs, that we can transport animals over land to locations. Um, but pre-storm, the best way for us to move animals was flight because the roads in Florida were bumper to bumper and there was no gas. So planes were the best way to move it. So we have these partner shelters that will take these animals in. And in some cases, they will send staff 
to come work with us under our banner in a disaster so that their staff gets the experience uh, and they can help out, you know, another another state. So there's a lot of partnerships that go into responding to a disaster. There's lots of national and, and state groups that work. And hopefully, you know, what it happens is that everybody, through this coordination, makes sure that there's, you know, not an area of the state that's not provided helping hand, that's not helped. So if there's an individual who has survived the storm okay and just wants to help and they show up in an area in need, they would probably partner or be screened and uh, signed up by one of the local groups. Certainly, you know, we encourage people to to get training ahead of time. Yeah. We have a volunteer uh, opportunity. People can go to, you know, humanesociety.org and sign up ahead of time and look for opportunities to train or help in, you know, an animal shelter from a cruelty case or something so that you know what you're getting into, you know what you're doing. So we, we prefer to use our volunteers first. In Florida, we have a, the State Animal Response Coalition that trains to um, do exactly this, you know, temporary sheltering after a disaster or even with the pet-friendly shelters ahead of time. So there's a lot of training that goes on. It's harder for somebody who has had no experience to integrate uh-huh. in, yeah. um, but certainly groups do it. But it's always preferable if people, you know, take that opportunity now when the disaster is not taking place to sign up get vetted, get some training, so that when they get to the location, they're not completely lost and overwhelmed with what's happening. Laura, I saw at least a couple of heartbreaking pictures of dogs tethered, tied up, as you mentioned earlier. What's your feeling or estimate as to how common this was in these storms? I don't know. I mean, Palm Beach County, where a lot of that came from, is very aggressive um, in their uh, animal control responsibilities. And, you know, they started hearing about animals left behind, and they were actually going out before the storm, rescuing those animals, knowing that it was going to flood. At that point, it could have been a category for going over them. Yeah. And they, um, they have vowed that they are going to take that very seriously and charge people with that abandonment. Um, I'm sure it didn't. It was not unique to Palm Beach County. We've gotten reports in other locations. Uh, you know, we're just going to have to see. There's interest in state, you know, expanding the state law to say, you know, you cannot tether in a dangerous situation, you know, expanding and clarifying the law. Um, but that's, you know, somehow we have to educate people and say, listen, you know, a law after the fact isn't going to help that animal, you know, pre-storm. We need to educate people, make sure they know they have a place to go and, and you know, try to get them to do the right thing. And it, it does happen. It breaks my heart. And I think that we we just have to be, you know, continue to be more aggressive of educating people and saying this, you know, this is a crime, it's, and, but it's also just morally wrong. You need to do something with that animal. You need to get it into a safe place. If you can't take it with you for whatever reason, then you need to, you know, make a note of it so that people can rescue it, even if it's after the storm. It's a travesty. Laura Bevan from the Humane Society of the United States. Thank you so much and keep up the good work. Thank you. Hi, it's Dr. Lori from Animals Today Radio, and today's Animals Today fun facts are about octopuses. Did you know the oldest octopus fossil was from an animal that lived 296 million years ago? And you can see that fossil at the Field Museum in Chicago. 
Octopuses have three hearts, one of which supplies blood to the organs, and the other two work to supply the gills. And their blood is a blue color, which transports oxygen better at cold temperatures and in low oxygen waters. And there are your Animals Today fun facts for today. back to animals today. In the summer of 2017, a huge shortfin mako shark was reeled in 100 miles off the coast of New Jersey by a sport fishing crew. Once at the marina, he was determined to be 12 feet long and 926 pounds, making it a record for the state. Reports of these big sharks being caught always depress me, even though I feel little affection for or connection to sharks. And I will never get used to the images of the proud killers posing with their suspended shark corpses. But why do these guys not acknowledge large sharks as apex predators critical to the ocean's ecosystem? Well, we are very fortunate to be joined by an individual who gives us an up-close view of live sharks in the wild. His name is Brian Scarry, and he is an incredibly talented marine wildlife photojournalist whose new book is titled Shark. Shark is published by National Geographic, so it gets the full Nat Geo treatment with wonderful printing of Brian's gorgeous photos accompanied by just the right amount of text. Welcome, Brian. Thanks, Peter. Great to be here. Brian, how did you get interested in sharks? Well, you know, I've, I've been diving, exploring the world's oceans for just about 40 years. I started as a teenager. Um, had a, a great love of the ocean from a, a very young age, and I just wanted to be an ocean explorer. I started scuba diving as a, a young teenager, and maybe a year or two discovered photography. That seemed to be the perfect way for me to explore, you know, with a camera and to make pictures and tell stories. And I sort of set my sights on working for National Geographic, and ultimately that came true as well for the magazine um, for the last 20 years. But about maybe four or five years after I started scuba diving, I was invited to go shark diving with a shark biologist. Uh, it was something I was greatly interested in. I didn't even realize I could do that here in New England where I live uh, at the time. But I went out and, and had my very first experience with a blue shark, and it, it profoundly changed me. You know, I, I think as a 20-year-old as a guy at that time when I saw that first shark, I, I probably was largely motivated by just the notion of being in the water with this predator yeah. and that that would give me street cred with my dive buddies. But, um, but you know, I came to see that animal as, as something exquisite and beautiful. And as a photographer, they, sharks represented this perfect blend of grace and power. It was a, a rather intoxicating sort of blend of, of subject matter. And I set out over decades to continue to photograph sharks. But but there was a bit of an evolution, you know, as well, in the sense that over time I came to see them as a fragile species, despite being some of the biggest, baddest guys in the ocean. Um, life can be very difficult, and you know, with a hundred million sharks being killed every year around the planet, largely for their fins, I felt that as a journalist I needed to tell that story as well. So there's been a number of reasons as to how I got started with it, what motivated me, and what continues to motivate me today. Brian, I'm glad you reminded us that the main threat to sharks is fishing so the fins can be obtained from these sharks. Because here in the United States, various states have been passing legislation banning 
shark fins and banning products from sharks. And yet worldwide, that's still the biggest issue sharks face. Yeah. Okay. I think part of the problem and, and one of the sort of reasons why uh, we produced this book, why I did this book, and, and I should also mention that the book sort of grew out of four recent stories that I did for National Geographic magazine. I did uh, three stories last year in 2016 that ran consecutively in June, July, and August, one on tiger sharks, one on oceanic white tip sharks, and one on great white sharks, three separate stories. And then uh, in the August issue this year in 2017, I had a story on mako sharks, on short fin makos. And it was sort of the culmination of those four stories that got us thinking about, you know, maybe it was time to do this book. And we used those, the coverage from those stories, along with my work over the last 35 years with sharks, to, to bring together this personal story that I've experienced with, with sharks and, and waters around the world. But, you know, I, I think that a, a motivator for me was with these stories and this book was to sort of give sharks a bit of a makeover, that I still believe that Largely, there's this shadowy, one-dimensional view of sharks that exists with most folks in the world. We only hear about sharks when there's a public safety issue or, you know, one, like you described, one was caught that was, you know, a very large animal. Um, those are the only things we hear about. And we, we sort of have this general connotation of this animal that's out there, maybe just waiting to bite us when we put a toe in the water. And the reality is that these are very complex animals, and science is showing them to be far more, you know, cognitively aware and, and maybe social, and there's so much more to their lives and behaviors than we know right now and we're beginning to see. But they're also, you know, vitally important to the health of the ocean. No matter what ecosystem sharks live in, and there's hundreds of different species of sharks in the ocean, they help keep that ecosystem healthy, just like predators do on land. And when you consider that every other breath that a human being takes comes from the ocean, you know, more than 50% of the oxygen that we breathe, no matter where you live in the world, is generated by the sea, then you realize that we can't kill 100 million sharks, apex predators in the ocean, and expect the oceans to remain healthy or, you know, our own lives to be healthy. We need to take care of the ocean. So, so it was really about connecting those dots. The photos are simply captivating, perhaps a little little scary to me to see you so close up to some of them. How do you get such good photos? Well, um, you know, there's a, there's a couple of things that I think are important to recognize uh, when it comes to underwater photography and shark photography. You know, unlike terrestrial wildlife photographers uh, who have their own set of challenges, the underwater photographer doesn't have the luxury of using a telephoto lens. You know, I can't sit in some camouflaged blind in the jungle somewhere and wait for a month for some elusive animal to wander by at some great distance and, and make a really cool photograph. Underwater photographers have to put their cameras in underwater housings. You have to get into the water and you can only stay underwater as long as the air supply on your back will last. That might be, you know, an hour or so. And you can't use these telephoto lenses. You have to get very close. The, the visibility underwater, even in the clearest of places, is never that good. And you must always get usually within a couple of meters of your subject. And, and if you really want to get great photos, you have to get even closer. So it's really a testament to the animals. And with sharks, you know, contrary to popular belief, they are not 
that interested in humans when we're diving. I mean, there are exceptions, I suppose, but my experiences have been that it's really hard and you have to spend a lot of time, you have to be very patient, and you have to, you know, get close. But unlike terrestrial predators, you know, you wouldn't get out of the Land Rover when trying to photograph a lion and lay on your belly and try to get nose to nose with them. That would be pretty crazy. But you can do that with sharks and you can do it safely. You know, I I, I don't want to over you know, estimate the, the fact that this is not without risk. There, there are risks, of course, whenever we're in the presence of any wild animals, and we have to be respectful and we have to be vigilant. But I think, you know, history is showing that we can, divers can do this over and over again and do it safely. And I, I think that speaks to the animals that do, at least on some level, allow us into their world. Um, and, and for somebody like me, it's an opportunity to make these pictures and try to tell their story. So that's some of the mechanics, but you haven't described how you make them so beautiful and captivating. Well, you know, uh, my previous book, my previous monograph, coffee table book, was called Ocean Soul. And I I came up with that title because it it sort of described what I was trying to capture uh, when I make pictures. And it's, it's sort of this life force that exudes from animals or even places. And you don't always get it. But I, for me, it's about you know, spending time with animals, being patient, uh, trying to capture that gesture and grace that all creatures inevitably will demonstrate if you're around them long enough and they feel comfortable around you. And, um, you know, technically it's about, you know, understanding what lenses to use and the correct dome ports and the right lighting and, you know, waiting for the magic moment and, and doing all those things. But I think from a standpoint of being in the water with these animals, it's about just trying to calm down a little bit. I think animals can sense when you're tense or, you know, afraid or or aggressive. So for me, it's about, you know, trying to allow them to to feel relaxed as well and and for me to get close to them and, and, and then look for those moments. I shoot a lot of pictures, you know, nowadays with digital, it's not like when I was shooting film and was only limited to 36 frames on a roll of film. Now I can shoot, you know, literally hundreds or thousands of pictures so I can take chances. I can take risks with photography, try different things. And, and, you know, it comes down to one image, you know, for National Geographic magazine on a a normal story these days, I might shoot 70 or 80,000 frames, uh, individual pictures, and we publish 10 or 12 in the story. So there's a lot of stuff that doesn't get seen, but you're looking for that, that one that's very special. Well, you and your colleagues at National Geographic, like I said, really have produced a wonderful volume. I've enjoyed paging through it so much. And uh, boy, I hope that you continue doing what you're doing uh, safely and sharing these sharks and all marine animals uh, with us. Well, I appreciate that, Peter. Thank you very much. I, I certainly hope to keep doing that. That's Brian Scarry. The book is Shark. Thank you very much. my home, we often hear coyotes howling and yipping in the distance. In fact, the other night, they were so loud that I had to shut my window so I could sleep. Around here, not infrequently, we see them crossing the roads and on golf courses. And then there are those stories of small dogs and cats disappearing, and often coyotes are blamed. I'm pleased to welcome back Dr. Robert Reed, Medical Director of VCA Rancho Mirage. He's very knowledgeable about coyotes. Welcome, Robert. Oh, hi, Peter. Good to be back. 
Robert, let's talk about coyotes, especially regarding the safety of our pets. But what's going on when they get so loud? Well, um, coyotes have a lot of ways that they communicate with each other. Um, Howling, of course, yipping, barking, and uh, huffing are the ones that we are most likely to hear. Howling is a way they communicate with each other from a distance, usually to signal territories or their presence so that they don't have as many conflicts with one another. Yipping is a type of communication that they use when they get together. It's more of a, a social interaction either a celebration or a criticism among individuals within a group of coyotes. The barking that you might hear if you got close to them is sometimes uh, a threat display. If you get too close to their den or their young, then they bark at you. And the huffing is how they communicate with their young, you know, in a way to give them a signal without making too much noise. Got it. Okay. So tell us a little bit about their their behaviors and their, and their feeding that might inform us about their risk to our animals? Well, first, you know, I should say it's hard to be objective about coyotes because they are such a threat in so many ways to people, but they're just living their lives. Yeah, yeah. And I think the best way for us to uh, to to live with them is to try to understand why they, they do what they do. And it is pretty natural for dogs, uh, for coyotes to attack dogs and cats. Uh, it's part of their normal behavior. Uh, they'll eat just about anything. That's how they've managed to succeed as a species so well. They're extremely adaptable in what they'll feed upon. Usually it's going to be small rodents and rabbits. They prefer meat, but they'll eat fruits, vegetables, grain, insects, uh, reptiles, even rattlesnakes, uh, pretty much anything. And they've managed to adjust to human environments so well that they can live in really close proximity to us with surprisingly little interaction. And how about their uh, breeding and reproducing? When when can I expect to see any evidence of that? Well, it's a good question because there's certainly going to be times of the year when we're more likely to encounter coyotes and times of the year when they're more likely to be a threat to our pets. Usually coyotes are going to be breeding in January and February. The breeding season is going to end probably by early March. Uh, That's a time of the year when they're more likely to be seen about because they're interacting with each other, uh, settling their mating arrangements. They have some unattached males wandering around and some territorial displays. Um, Even that involve dogs and sometimes larger dogs if coyotes feel a threat to their territory. But after that, after the, the breeding season, they're going to go to their dens and, and have puppies usually about two months later. And then about six weeks after the puppies are born, so maybe May, early June, um, the early part of the summer where we are, um, the coyotes are going to be much more active in feeding because they have these litters of puppies that they're trying to take care of. And that's a time that's a particular risk because our uh, cats and small dogs are, are a source of food for them. Okay, so they would look for a small dog or a cat and kill it or bring it back alive yeah. to the den? No, actually, they, they're, looking for the, they're looking at them as a source of food. They actually will uh, attack them, kill them, and either eat them then or um, more likely eat them and then regurgitate their food when they return to the den for the pups. And so, uh, obviously, this raises concerns if you leave your small dog out or if you've got a outdoor or indoor-outdoor cat. 
Oh, certainly. Yeah. You know, uh, again, where we are in, in uh, Southern California, it's, you know, there's so many risks from coyotes to cats at night that we always recommend that they stay indoors between dusk and dawn. And a small dog should really either be on a leash or we're in a yard that has, uh, I'd say, about a six-foot wall or higher. And that's a wall, not a, not a chain-link fence, because chain-link fences, they may be able to crawl a little bit higher than that because they have footholds. But a six-foot wall that goes about six inches under the ground is probably okay. Yeah. I remember seeing a YouTube video in, I think, suburban Phoenix or Scottsdale, and you see a coyote just sort of strolling along the sidewalk and just pops up onto the top of a pretty tall wall almost effortlessly. It's really a little frightening, actually. Just Yeah, no, they're pretty amazing. I think, you know, there's always going to be exceptions, and there, there are lots of stories about coyotes climbing 8- and 10-foot uh, fences, but they have to have a pretty strong motivation to do that. And I feel pretty comfortable, for the most part, with a 6-foot wall, a brick wall or a stone wall, uh, there are products that you can get to put on top of a wall that will reduce their ability to get a foothold. They're called coyote rollers, they're oh, basically yeah. little devices that roll on the top of the wall. And then, of course, you can uh, put uh, additions onto the wall that divert the coyote away from the wall if they try to climb. Do they uh, carry any diseases that people should be wearing? I mean, do they have rabies or other transmissible diseases? Well, they certainly have the potential to carry diseases that are transmitted to people or to dogs. Probably the only one of any significance that is transmissible to people is rabies. Leptospirosis would be the other one that comes to mind. Um, as far as diseases transmitted between dogs and coyotes, certainly there is a potential. There's not really any information available for us to know how often that happens or if it happens, but there are a number of diseases that dogs and coyotes can both get. Uh, whether they get them from each other is hard to say. So final words on advice about keeping everyone safe if you live out. By, and by the way, coyotes, they're really everywhere, aren't they? Oh, yeah. You know, it, that's a, a good point to bring up. You know, coyotes, aside from humans, may be the most successful mammalian species in North America, you know, since European colonization, they've actually expanded their range dramatically. They used to be uh, more of a plains animal in the southwest and and parts of Mexico. Uh, Now they're all over North America, from Alaska to Panama, New England, Florida. They're pretty much everywhere. And uh, most of those places, they're living fairly close to people and uh, doing quite well. Many efforts have been tried to get rid of them from from agricultural areas and have never really been very successful. So we just have to accept that they're going to be with us and um, we need to take some measures to protect our pets, uh, among other things. But the main thing that I worry about with protecting pets is if we don't do anything to bring them close to us. If there's one thing I would want any listener to remember is that they should never feed coyotes. If feeding a coyote helps reduce its fear of people, Um, It makes an association based on food, and it brings them in close proximity to us and to our pets. But anything that that draws them around the house, basically anything that they may consider a source of food, should be controlled, not left out at night particularly. Thanks, Robert Reed. That's Dr. Robert Reed, Medical Director of VCA Rancho Mirage here in Southern California. Thanks again. Great talking to you, Peter. 
And this is Peter Spiegel encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion for the only other beings sharing our planet, the animals. 